they have a title that says scientists turn dead spiders into robots. Um, I, have, I already have so many questions. So these researchers have made a new field of study mm-hmm. that they dubbed necrobotics. Sweet. <laughs> That's so. That honestly is the most <laughs> sci-fi punk thing ever. Welcome everybody to the 38th episode of the Struggling Scientist podcast. This is a podcast by scientists, for scientists, anybody science adjacent, and perhaps even hobbyists. My name is Susanna, and I'm here with my co-host Jerome. Hi. Today we have another episode of Cutting Edge Research, and it's going to be a science news episode again. We'll tell you all about the scientific topics that made the news since our last science news episode. Not only will you be fully up to date, have fantastic new science facts to share at your next social event, but we'll even fact check uh, if the paper behind the article actually says what the reporters are writing about it, which seems to be not always the case. So let's start. Okay, so science news. Jaron, what is the first article that you have found? Okay, well, uh, so the first article we're going to be talking about is from CNN Health, and it's called You Have a Doppelganger and Probably Share DNA with Them, A New Study Suggests. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Interesting. Intriguing, I know. Yes. So basically this this um, yeah article from CNN focuses on this paper that was published in the Journal of Cell Reports from a uh, Spanish group where they looked at people who look very similar to each other. They're not biologically related at all. Uh, so yeah, they resemble each other, but they have what they saw. So sort of the major spoiler is that they are genetically similar. They did quite okay. a few testing, quite a bit of testing on these people. So both they looked at, I should probably specify exactly how many people and what kind of people. Mm-hmm. So the co-authors recruited 32 people who are lookalikes. So 30, no, sorry, 32 pairs of people who are lookalikes. And then they, what they did is they performed DNA testing on them to identify genetic variants, SNPs. Uh, they also looked at epigenetics as well as their gut microbiota. Okay. De- yeah, yeah, detailed. <laughs> what uh, what does gut microbiota have to do with this? Details. <laughs> <laughs> Thorough. You don't get into the journal of cell reports that easy, apparently. So yeah. Um, they are, in addition to that, after all this testing, the thing you really need to keep in mind is the DNA testing. That was the only thing that really came out. Mm. The, the gut microbiota as it's <laughs> It's not significant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Major spoilers. <laughs> but it's in the paper, so uh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, they, from there, after doing all the <laughs> genetic testing as well, they also uh, gave the participants questionnaires about their life to sort of see how much, how similar uh, the people are. Uh, in addition to that, they also ran sort of the, the faces of the, the pair, the lookalike pairs through facial recognition software. So through three different facial recognition softwares. Okay. And they basically sort of split the 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 groups of pairs, I guess. I don't know how you better say that, but into 16 pairs that are according to the software basically identical, like they the software could the software okay. could not distinguish between the two people. So they are the most similar. According to the facial software. recognition software okay. at least. And the other pairs that the software could distinguish between uh, and what they came up with is, so the results were that the 16 pairs had similar identical twin, were similar, had similar scores according to the facial recognition to identical twins. They saw that the pairs with identical faces, according to the software, had more genes in common to the other six, uh, than the other 16 pairs. Okay. And 
this is where the article doesn't go into detail and you can really tell that there's a sort of popular science article it says genes in common but it doesn't mean genes it means genetic variants like single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. and it doesn't say anything about like what types of genes if these are actually genes that have something to do with how you look or whatever uh that's that's uh, what i would assume right? yes i'm uh that's probably more in the paper not in this mm. uh, actual like you know popular science this is this, the main report is the main conclusion is that Pairs who look very much alike have similar genetic variants to each other. So that's the main overall conclusion. And of course, there are quite a few limitations uh, right off the top that you can think of with this uh, study. The first off being the sample size, uh, since you only have 32 pairs of people. And, and then narrow it down further to 16, yeah. Yeah, well, the 16 for that were really, uh, that the facial recognition software really identified as, you know, mm -hmm. indistinguishable, you know, like that. They looked at both the both groups, of course. But in addition to that, the study was uh, done by a group in, in Spain, in Barcelona. And so most of the, 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 the recruiting process was done in Europe, essentially. So everyone is mostly European and it's known at least sort of, I believe that Apple had this whole controversy with like their, their image recognition software on their phones that it couldn't really distinguish well between black people. So, uh, so if you have people who are not of European descent, how well does your facial recognition software work then? And will these results translate equally well between people of other backgrounds, essentially? Uh, so that's also something to consider. Uh, but it's more a limitation of the facial recognition software than, than the actual DNA. True. This was also, you know, back then, right? Like facial recognition software has probably come a long way since mm -hmm. that whole controversy and stuff like that. But interesting to note, uh, the way that a lot of these pairs, these uh, lookalike pairs were actually recruited was from an, an art project, actually, sort of photo project from a Canadian artist called Francoise uh, Brunel. And the project is called I'm Not a Lookalike, uh, interestingly enough. And so okay. that's how the, the, the researchers managed to recruit 32 people uh, or to 32 pairs of lookalikes. Huh? So, uh, yeah. Interesting. A, yeah, no, for sure. I think the title is a little bit more misleading because mm. you probably share DNA with them. Could also be that you are from the same sort of family tree, which is not the case. It's just genetic mm -hmm. variants that you share. So yes, but it's also possible that if you look really far back, that you know these people are related, right? Yeah, so that's it, not what this paper, this paper shows. No, indeed, but it's at least in this sort of general popular science article. They sort of talk about people who are not related to each other, at yeah. least from the last 100 years. But it could be like, you know, 500 years ago that these people were similar. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Or at least had similar okay. ancestry. So, uh, yeah. And epigenome and gut microbiota, not that important, apparently. Or very different <laughs> that it doesn't, you yeah, know. Duh. Yeah, duh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Yes. Your gut microbiota does not have any effect on you being a doppelganger or not. That's like the main message. Okay. <laughs> On that's to the what next you're choosing topic. to take away from it. <laughs> On to the next topic. Yeah. Okay. This one um, is from weather.com. Not a science news uh, page. But it is about climate change is making sharks walk on land and scientists have managed to capture it on tape. Oh, God. We're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> it's very... Popular written article, it has uh, things like, what if we told you that the chances of getting attacked by a shark on land would be slim, but never zero? 
It's very catchy. It might have um, to. You might have to reconsider. Like cows kill more people than sharks at that point. Then. <laughs> well, it's all about telling us about how this type of shark is a tiny shark. That's what the article quite quite uh, early on says. Not but, like the big great white shark, but deadly. It's an epaulet shark is oh. a tiny shark that lives in reefs and has like nice dots on it. It's quite cute looking. <laughs> But what they basically say is that uh, scientists have now cut this on tape for the first time. And that's absolutely not what the science article about it is about. Now, at the end of the article, they go into a little bit more detail. But it has been known for quite a long time that when tides are low, uh, you get these reef pools that can get quite hot because of the sun and can get a really low oxygen then. And these sharks are then able to sort of tiger themselves to the next pool where there might be oxygen oxygen again. So this is something that these sharks have been doing. But what this article behind it, the, the research paper behind it, it was trying to do was that they found that if these tiger sharks' embryos are grown under hotter conditions, like with climate change now, they grow up a little bit different. They have some, some problems with their growth, basically. And I think they become a little bit smaller and their fins are different. And they wanted to see if that had any uh, effect on their walking and swimming ability. Because that they could walk was already known. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, not very far. They can only go, uh, what was it, I think, 30 times their own body size. Okay. But it's enough to go from one pool to the other, right? That's if enough you... to chase you down if you're slow. <laughs> <laughs> These are not big enough to actually attack you, don't worry. Uh, and they found that there uh, is no difference between the the neonate and juvenile epaulets sharks. So it's very interesting that this has actually been picked up by, by a new site and also completely wrongly taken, basically, because they, they make it sound like they, for the first time, captured it on tape which is really not what this article was about. But um, yeah, it's a, the, the original article is written in Oxford Academic. And yeah, I just think it's really funny how, how different this um, journalist took this. They have a really nice video about how the shark is walking on, on land. And it's deadly looking? No, absolutely not. It's quite cute, like I already said. <laughs> it has dots. We're not adopting it. No. no, no, I don't have a seat tank yet. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we are very excited to be able to introduce you to our new sponsor, Jenny AI. Not only does Jenny make our podcast possible, it also makes our life as scientists so much easier. Jenny is an all-in-one writing assistant that has everything that we have been missing in other AI tools. Yes, first off, unlike other AI tools, it actually finds accurate information in papers and cites its sources. It does not make things up and only uses real verified information that you can then also check the source of. Second, it's a writing assistant trained for academic papers and helps you write your paper by suggesting the next sentence or the end of your sentence. Or, if you get really stuck, you can ask it to write an entire paragraph. Completely removing the writer's block I so often struggle with when I don't know the right words to make my point. It helped me write an introduction to a paper I've been struggling with in half an hour. It even suggests which papers to cite. You can add your own library or search the entire internet for papers. Just type the add symbol to easily add a reference and it gets automatically added to the reference list. 
And the last thing we absolutely love is that it has an AI chatbot that can see your document and give feedback on how to improve your manuscript. Or you can ask it questions, such as what are the potential therapeutic benefits of dot dot dot, and it will search through the papers for you for the answer. I can only say that my stress level has gone down significantly since I started using Jenny. Check out the free version now at thestrugglingscientist.com slash Jenny. And if you love it, use the code SCIENCE20 for a 20% discount. On to the next topic. Yeah, so the next one is going to revolutionize everything. It's about mouse embryos grown without eggs or sperm. Wait, what? Yes, we've done it. So, I mean, without sperm is one thing, but without <laughs> eggs. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that men are absolutely sort of new, right? But that... Uh... I feel attacked. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go to the actual article. Tell yeah. me. Tell so me. this, this uh, popular uh, science article was published in Scientific American. And it's actually not on one paper, but on two papers. Uh, one published in Cell and the other in Nature uh, around the same time and showing similar results. So it's uh, regarding two research, uh, research groups that grew a synthetic mouse embryo using stem cells from, for long enough to see some organs develop. Okay. This is actually not as new as it's uh, making it out to be, it's so, as I'll uh, get into just a bit, but sort of to lay the, the groundwork. As is tradition, in order to <laughs> create life, you need an egg and sperm and a little bit That's of patience. very traditional indeed. Yes, and a little bit of patience. and then. You have a mouse. <laughs> Do you? Do you? <laughs> or an embryo, baby thing, sort of. But in this case, it would be a mouse. Okay, hopefully. yes. Yes. Yeah. Because we'll, as we'll get into, ethical issues. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But uh, two groups of researchers who published in Cell and Nature uh, found, different, found a different way to do it, and that's by using stem cells. Mm -hmm. Specifically, under the very right conditions, you can have stem cells divide and organize into basically an embryo uh, on their own. And so what their results show is that uh, they managed to grow embryos up to 8.5 days, which is long enough for them to develop several organs, namely the heart, the gut tube, and even neural, uh, neural folds. But uh, the group started slightly differently in their approach. So one group, I think it was the group that published in Nature, uh, started with using embryonic stem cells, while the other group started using three distinct populations of cells already and then to grow. But uh, the major innovation that's sort of one of the two major innovations that came to get these embryos to grow up to 8.5 days was that by they didn't just add embryonic stem cells, they also added stem cells that give rise to the placenta and yolk sac. Uh, and this helped the embryos develop even further. Okay. Uh, and by what I mean by further is that one of the groups had already, I, I think they published it already, but at least the article sort of references that last year they already show that uh, they could grow an embryo up to day seven. So basically this entire new publication is an additional 1.5 days of growth. Okay. Which actually turns out to be not not that insignificant for a full I mean, mouse. mouse yeah. Yes, because it's only that, 21 days. Total. Yeah, 20, 21 days uh, in total. So 1.5 days is actually, you know, quite a bit. Yeah. So yeah, these two groups did it separately, but also without knowing it, they actually worked together. So the the group that worked that published in Nature made a very fancy incubator, apparently that sort of, uh, from what I understood, it, uh, has glass vials that rotate in like a Ferris wheel like system. And then this system, they was what the other the group that published in Cell also used. 
but they differed slightly in what they, how they approached getting to the 8.5 days. So the group in cell tried using up to three different cell types, putting it together and growing it like that. While the nature group started all embryonic stem cells and had them grow and develop into the different cell types. And so you have everything starting out from the same embryonic stem cells. Okay. This actually really reminds me of a discussion I just had like on Wednesday, I think, with my colleague Mm -hmm. uh, about how I was so surprised that not more research has been done into an artificial womb. Yeah. Because pregnancy is just Mm -hmm. not okay. (laughs) But... Yeah. Like she looked up and apparently there's this Dutch group that says the Dutch scientist, she found an mm-hmm. article that says Dutch scientists say that in the next 10 years, artificial wombs will be possible. We had so much fun about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think an artificial, well, if, if, if this keeps progressing, right? Like if every year they manage to add another 1.5 days, they'll get there. I'm actually more excited about the fact that they can almost grow embryos outside of the mouth than mm-hmm. they grow it from from like stem cells no for sure that's, i mean mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but i mean apparently this isn't really all that novel right like they last year already they're that same group published it to up to seven days and now it's up to 8.5 so i mean i think in 10 years maybe we'll be able to do it for mice dutch scientists say yes mice <laughs> mice wombs are possible <laughs> the funniest thing about it was that my colleague just before that said like i think in the next 10 years or something would be it would be possible and then we had so much fun because she is a dutch scientist that mm-hmm. says that in the, in the next 10 yeah. year it should be possible yeah so yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay so, so but uh what the scientists also say is that there are some benefits to using this method outside of like trying to grow human embryos, obviously, because it also is easy to observe. You can really see how the entire process is happening. Yeah, of course. And of you course. can also do knockouts and easily manipulate things. I mean, and see for like people that. that might have real infertility issues, yep. it it would be super cool if they could grow human no, sure. stem cells. But yep. Yeah, I'm more excited about the artificial wound part of mm. it than about the, the growing it from stuff. No, for sure. And also, like, one of the groups also said, like, potentially one day this could also help people who have infertility yes, issues. Yes, the, the article that we looked up actually said that they managed to, uh, with little goats that were prematurely born, mm-hmm. uh, like, really prematurely, they were already able to put them in an artificial womb and then grow them a bit more. Mm. And they were really trying to develop this now to... Um, try and get this done for human babies that might be prematurely born, mm. that they can develop a bit more in an artificial womb. That's what's, what they were now trying to accomplish. So yeah. An interesting field to be in. No, for sure. And I honestly think what you were saying, indeed, like, quote-unquote, the artificial womb, which is in this case just a fancy incubator with, like, glass vials and a Ferris wheel like But system. I mean that they can already get mm. to that many days mm-hmm. with just that. That's yeah. crazy. No, for sure. But I mean, it does requ- it did require, like, you know... I'm sure there's an entire cocktail of what needs to go hmm. into the stem cells to get them to to uh, work. So, uh, but yeah, it's still very much a long way away from humans or potentially even coming close to humans just because of many, many ethical yeah, concerns. Yes, yes, yes. That's why I think it's also way better to aim for the, uh, the artificial womb that helps babies that are prematurely born for now. I don't think we should mm. ever try <laughs> making humans from like, I don't know. Yeah. It goes quite far, yeah. No, but I mean, I can already see people arguing then, like, what is prematurely born at that point, right? Like, well, people will just keep uh, being difficult about where you draw the line, I think. But, yeah. yeah. Okay, but that was that paper. Yes. <laughs> Let's move on to the next one. 
Now, this these scientists have uh, gone into my worst nightmares and are trying to make them come true, and, and I'm not happy about it. So uh, this article is from sciencenews.org, which is a very interesting website. You can check it out. Um, and they have a title that says, Scientists Turn Dead Spiders into Robots. Awesome. We did it. <laughs> well, I don't like spiders at oh. all. There were also some photos in this in this news article that I really did not like. Um, I, have, I already have so many questions. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so these scientists have made a new these researchers have made a new field of study mm -hmm. that they dubbed necrobotics. Sweet. <laughs> That's so. That honestly is the most <laughs> sci-fi punk thing ever. <laughs> what they mean with that is that you combine. Uh, biological parts of that that organisms with robots, in this case spiders, <laughs> and they used <laughs> wolf spiders, which are I guess tiny spiders that if they die, they sort of crumple up. Uh, and an interesting thing about spiders is that spiders don't have muscle; they actually mm. manipulate the pressure into in their legs uh, to move them. So more pressure means legs going open; less pressure is them going in. Insects are a very weird biology type they don't they don't usually have muscles so these people thought that it would be great if they could manipulate the pressure in these mouse legs to make them grab spider stuff. legs right uh, spider legs <laughs> to make them grab stuff um yeah <laughs> so what they did uh was use that they put a, a needle into the mouse uh, the, into the spider body and I'm watching a video about it now. I don't like it. So I'm, <laughs> I'm <laughs> okay. So they put a needle into the spider body and then they will put more water in it um. or fluid or whatever that at least the robot did. Then the legs would open. Then they could lever it down and then they could take the water with the needle out of the body again. And then it would grab and then it could lift uh, tiny wires or uh, other spiders <laughs> up with that. Um. So yeah, they used the corpses of wolf spiders to make necrobots. Uh, and again, I'm not happy about it. <laughs> I think I heard you ask this question before, but let me be the first to ask it live on our podcast. Hmm? Uh, why? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a very good, good uh, uh, question. How, how does this solve <laughs> and they, they diabetes? Actually, manage to. Um, say something about it uh -huh. <laughs> in their abstract. It says, furthermore, their gripper can serve as a handheld device and innately camouflages in outdoor environments. What? <laughs> <laughs> so we're going spider robot military? I don't know. <laughs> I feel like this is one of those CIA projects. They're like, okay, and we need to stop the terrorists with the robot. Actual research paper. This is not even in the article. This is what they say in the actual research paper. Okay. Innately camouflages in outdoor environments. Where was this published? Necrobots can be further extended to incorporate biotic materials derived from other creatures with similar hydraulic mechanisms for locomotion and articulation. So we're trying to create chimera necrobots now? Yep, of okay. course. Spider snakes. <laughs> <laughs> it was published in Nature. very good question. Advanced science. Pretty advanced stuff here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
I, I would almost say I would want to have a talk with these scientists, but I really don't because they, they had the crazy idea to use dead spiders to make creepy arms on robots. What if the scientists themselves are dead and being controlled by spiders? Okay, no. <laughs> <laughs> this is already nightmarish enough for me. I mean... Spider people. Spider, spider people. people. Okay. Let's move on to the next one because we have heard enough about dead spiders and necrobotics. Jaron, tell us about the next one. Yeah, so the next uh, article is called Electrical Bacteria May Help Clean Oil Spills and Curb Methane Emissions. So it's not actually about one specific okay, paper. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah? Electrical bacteria. Yes, this is not dead robot spiders. Just to be clear. <laughs> it sounds just as bad. No, it's actually pretty good. Oh, okay actually pretty good but it's not about one specific paper because it's going to go in depth about no not in depth but like it's going to talk about the use of these electrical bacteria in different things from different papers okay but it was published uh, or at least this popular science article was published by uh, sciencenews.org and what it so a little bit of background you have these bacteria called cable bacteria they are essentially like these living wires or tread-like bodies they're very thin thinner than a human hair and they can channel electricity, to quote the, the, the author of this uh, thing. And more specifically, uh, and this is a direct quote from the article, to paint you a picture of uh, how these things actually look, under, under the microscope, cable bacteria resemble long sausage links. Yes. Yeah, okay. So, so they're connected together. Yes, yeah, okay. and they're very long. And how they function is that they have one end of their body sort of deep in wherever sediment or uh, water or whatever they are in. Mm -hmm. And the other end of the, uh, their bodies is going out where there's more oxygen. And mm -hmm. do we then mean one bacteria or like a chain of bacteria? I am unclear on that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's one bacteria, but don't hold me to that. Okay. But effectively what these bacteria are able to do is the, the part of their body, bodies, body, that is sort of deep in whatever sediment they are that has, for example, a lot of sulfites, which can be mm -hmm. deadly and can uh, lead to all kinds of problems. They can accept an electron from that and convert the sulfites into sulfates, which is less lethal, more conducive with life. Mm -hmm. And then they can sort of transport that electron across their entire body all the way up to the other end where there's more oxygen. And oxygen is a great electron acceptor, so they just sort of give off the electron there. It's almost like neurons. Yep, basically, yeah. Uh, oh, that's actually quite cool. Yeah, exactly. But uh, what's actually really... So this is how the, the this type of bacteria functions. But it could apparently be used for quite a few different things. So in one condition, you have this thing called euxenia. is a situation in which sort of like uh, you have a body of water that has a lot of sulfates or sulfites in it. So it's already getting less and less conducive with life. But if you have these cable bacteria, they can convert these sulfites into... Sulfates? Yes. Uh, and thus sort of make the, the... What this does is sort of make the water a bit more acidic, this, or the sediment more acidic, which then dissolves some minerals containing iron. And then this iron is now sort of more mobile and sort of can go sort of more upward to the sediment and then interact with oxygen and forms rust. And then this rust essentially acts like this sort of yeah, firewall or block preventing the, the spread of the euxenia, which is this buildup of sulfides 
in oxygen, uh, sort of starved for water, and which is not conducive with life. So, yeah. So they clean up the pool. Basically. Essentially, yeah. Okay. But that's just one of the use cases for these bacteria. The other case would be to help in oil spills. Mm-hmm. Because what happens in oil spills is that you get like a lot, an increased amounts of hydrocarbons that sort of accumulate at the bottom of like the yeah the sea or the water or whatever, and you have organisms, sea organisms that can clear that up, clear these hydrocarbons, mm-hmm. and when there are more hydrocarbons, these organisms are happy with that, of course. But how they normally do that is by the production of sulfides. Oh. So they increase sulfides, and then this inadvertently leads to their own death because they. <laughs> Yeah, and it kills off everything else. Yeah, no good. <laughs> yeah, so potentially these cable bacteria can also be added in addition to like these other sea organisms to clear up the sulfides and sort of balance it out like that and help with oil spillage spills like that. Okay. And there's one last use case, which is very specific, but is to help clear met- methane specifically from rice paddies. <laughs> which are these um. yeah, fields where you can grow, grow rice. Mm-hmm. Because how rice is grown, it's in a body of water as well. And you have these things called methanogens, which produce a lot of methane gas, specifically in rice paddies. And they also do it via the production of sulfides, which are also deadly. And apparently rice fields contribute to about 11% of all methane emissions in the world. Wow. Yeah, I did not know that. But apparently these cable bacteria are also able to help contribute to that, essentially, and fight off methane production like that. Okay, cool. So, uh, multi, multi-use case for these cable bacteria. They're, they're apparently on every continent, as far as I could tell, as far as this uh, article uh, suggests already. It's just uh, getting them in sufficient amounts to be used for massive oil spills or massive production of rice in general is... Uh, Sort of one of the limiting factors in using it adequately in combination with everything else. It seems to be the limiting factor. Okay. So there's that. Does sound cool though. No, for sure. I mean, effectively, we have something that could help in a quite a variety of different cases, including maybe global warming. So. Cool. Okay, let's move on to the next one. This one is on um, SciTech Daily. And uh, it's about one paper, but it also references what has been found before. So it's a really nice article, I have to say. And it's called Research Show Remarkable Impact of Grape Consumption on Health and Lifespans. And it's basically about mouse studies where they supplemented mouse food with grapes. And then this uh, really helped against fatty liver disease and also against high cholesterol diets and things like that. Mm. And they found it actually has a really large effect on gene expression okay. i think they mainly check liver and it really increases antioxidants mm. and it, it increases the level of antioxidant genes which is usually good i mean there's a lot of claims made by food that they cause antioxidants but apparently grapes do it too and it's protective against fatty fatty liver and it extended the lifespan of mice giving a high fat western diet and it's, of course, a little bit difficult to compare that to mouse life, a mouse life to human life, because they live so much shorter. But um, they actually say that this would correspond to an additional four to five years in a human life. I'll take that. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, Although, proportionally, one grape is much larger to a mouse than it is to a human. Yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> 
That's uh, a lot of grapes we might need to eat, I guess. I don't know. Yes. Apparently, it did not affect the rate of consumption or body weight, but it only delayed the natural death. And then I also went to the to the original article, and there they actually also looked at specifically what genes were changed. They did RNA sequencing and a lot of other interesting experiments, of course. And they really saw that genes for metabolism, transportation, hydrolysis, and sequestration of fatty acids were upregulated, but the genes responsible for lipid content and cholesterol synthesis were downregulated, which is, of course, for me, very interesting. So, um, yeah. yeah. And antioxidants were genes were up. So, really, really interesting, I would say. Oh, for sure. Um, Just by eating grapes. We did it. Did they <laughs> say what kind of grapes? I, I am not a grape specialist. Ooh. Ooh, yeah. Uh, Before we take the one that is, you know, inversely correlated with life. Standardized grape powder. 5% standardized grape powder. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all natural grape powder. Yeah, no, that's yeah. all I can tell you. <laughs> uh, where am I going to find that tree that lays grape powder? <laughs> Yeah. All natural grape powder. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe some Mauritius is required. <laughs> and here I thought they gave these poor mice actual, actual grapes. grapes. <laughs> yes, you won. that seemed like the most easy thing, but I mean, I get you need to standardize it, but <laughs> all natural grape powder. <laughs> I, I just had in my head like a cute picture of a mouse just like mm, knowing all the grape, but no, but no. They were choking on grape powder, <laughs> like the cinnamon dust. Poor mice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, they also remarked that it might have effects on other parts of your body and not just the, uh, the liver that they investigated. Mm -hmm. But um, they didn't research that as far as I could see. So <laughs> These mice become significantly dumber. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it might have some side effects. But, you know. <laughs> Important for follow-up research, yes. not this one. <laughs> no. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the next topic. Yes. So, the next paper is on good sleepers are less likely to suffer a stroke. Getting seven to eight hours each night and not tossing and turning in bed is best study rules. Okay. Yes. Well, I, I have to say, I see more and more research uh, the, the saying that enough sleep is important. Jeron? Abu. <laughs> but, but, but this study, to the surprise of absolutely no one, says good sleep is less likely to, to kill you. To, yes, from via stroke. Oh, okay. Yeah. Specific. Yeah. Okay. It's a really epidemiological study that they, it's by French researchers that monitor, monitored the shut-eye habits of more than 7,000 people wow. over the age of 50. So more specifically, the age between 50 and 75. The participants were in good heart health upon being recruited underwent physical examination and were quizzed about, uh, on their sleeping habits and medical history. And uh, de depending, they also get, were given a questionnaire about specifically how they sleep, where they, where, whether they were a morning person, ha suffered from insomnia, or had tiredness in daytime and so on. And depending on whether or not they were a morning person, they would get one point attributed to them from the questionnaire. If they suffer from insomnia, for example, that was zero points. And if they don't, one point. Um, Wait, so is being a morning person a good or a bad trait in this study? Good thing, from what I can tell. Oh, yeah. okay. 
Damn it. Yes. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so they monitored these people for, I believe, uh, yeah, a decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after that decade, again, this is more than 7,000 people. 274 of them suffered a stroke in that time. And basically what they were able to find is that people, they saw two very distinct groups. So people who scored very lowly on the questionnaire. So they really were bad sleepers, suffered insomnia, everything. And people who scored, very few people who scored very highly. So I think it was something like only 7%, uh, very like 8 or 7% of people were in that high scoring group. Mm-hmm. And there was a reduction of about 70% in your cardiovascular risk or ability, uh, uh, risk of getting stroke if you were in the really high good sleeping group wow. versus in the really low sleeping group. And they also sort of went deeper into the data and they noted that basically every one point increase in their overall sleep score uh, over time was linked with a 7% decrease in risk of coronary heart disease or that's stroke. actually like a lot yes no for sure so uh but i mean you can imagine that right so like if every if you're in insomniac or tired during the day you might also make worse health decision i don't know if it's necessarily the sleep exa- itself that's you know physically causing giving your body some rest is also really important no for sure but i mean i think there's there would probably also be sort of second order consequences like you know maybe you make poor decisions and eat more unhealthy or you know all of that also might because they don't at least as far as i could tell check on these people metabolically or Mm -hmm. anything like that afterwards right they just did the questionnaire up front and then measure which ones get cardiovascular have cardiovascular stroke or not yeah okay so no but it's definitely interesting um and yeah seven to eight hours of good sleep is important yes it is i've also seen articles i think about increasing your chance on Things like dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, good sleep is really important. No, for sure. So. I think that's the easiest life hack. Good, get good sleep. Well, it's not that easy, though. No, for sure. <laughs> Especially like if you work, if you have work like mm-hmm. early in the morning. No. I mean. It's yeah. easy, easily said. Yeah. Difficult to do. Yes. Much like mar- running a marathon. Okay. <laughs> the next one is from SciTech Daily. And it's. The article is called The Fantastic Giant Turtles, Believed to be Extinct, Has Been Found Alive. A happy ending. (laughs) Yeah. So it's actually about the Fernandina Island Galapagos Giant Turtles. Turtles? (laughs) Turtles. It was first discovered in 1906. And that was the only specimen, male specimen, that has been found until 2019 when a female was found, but they weren't sure if it was of the same species <laughs> because the male had like a very distinct shell, but the females, well, the one female that they found had that a bit less and was also a bit less well-grown, they, they thought. Now, um, they're actually called after the island where they're found, uh, which is called Fernandina. Okay. And this female one was found in 2019, but they weren't sure if this was the same species. So now there was this one researcher, a postdoc, who managed to get DNA from that original male from 1906 and check it with uh, Fernandas, which is the female that was found in uh, 2019, (laughs) DNA, and it matched. 
and it was actually really different than other other um, tortoises that were found in the Galapagos region. Mm-hmm. So all these people were not really sure if it was actually in a different species, and you know, but that apparently it is really different. Um, they're not just a subspecies, but they are really a different species according to this, and they live on Fernandinas. But apparently this island is a really young island with still a lot of lava pools and everything. So it's quite difficult to traverse. There's not a lot of greenery, which is also where why Fernanda, the female turtles, was thought to have some growth deficient because she didn't have a lot to eat. And also there were no relative species, similar species on the nearest island. But on another island that was even further away and behind that nearest island. <laughs> but there, on that nearest island, there were no species that were any similar. So how they actually managed to end up on that Fernandinas island was completely unclear. Now, it is known that even though turtles cannot swim, they can float. And sometimes during hurricanes, they are actually moved from one island to the other one. So that's also how they thought that two, these two turtles would end up on Fernandinas. But apparently, they... Oh, yeah, that was the other thing. They're actually related. So that <laughs> young female is related to that that male that was found in 1906. Okay, this is literally just finding Fernanda. <laughs> so that shows that they actually bred on that island and are native to, to Fernandina, apparently. They're hiding in the lava pools. That's the only explanation yeah. at this point. Yeah, well... Um, I have no idea how this island looks, right? Like other than lava pools, apparently. But yeah, but then later in the, in the later part of the, of the article, they actually start interviewing that postdoc that actually did that research, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he, well, the the turtles are cool and all, <laughs> but this actual tool <laughs> that he developed was to analyze DNA from ancient museum specimens, not just turtles but also like Neanderthals or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that was what he was actually researching. He was researching a way to get DNA samples out of old museum specimens. And yeah. Came in <laughs> handy, apparently. Yeah. So it's, it wasn't just about the turtles. Does the article mention any... So like that original male, right? Like don't tortoises live like quite a long time? Mm-hmm. It, yeah, but he's actually... Uh, the the male mm-hmm. is in a museum dead. Oh, maybe. It yeah. was collected in 1906. Yeah, collected doesn't sound good. No. <laughs> <laughs> so they might have taken the only male that they ever found, uh-huh. killed it, and put it in a museum. Well, luckily, <laughs> if we ever get tortoise embryos growing from stem cells, yeah. <laughs> yeah. we can bring them back. Uh, Fernanda is also not anymore on the island. What? She is... <laughs> <laughs> She is actually in a turtle san- sanctuary. Oh, I thought um, she was out living her best life. <laughs> no. So, yeah, she is in a, in a turtle sanctuary and they still hope to find other tortoises that they can breed her with. Okay. I mean, yeah. that's so human, though, to take, like, the, the maybe only female that's left from the island where there might be potential breeding partners, put her in a cage. And then later we go look for tortoises that look like her, but then on an island with lava pools that are really difficult for humans to traverse. I mean, true, but apparently there there might not be a lot of these uh, tortoises left. Yeah, but if you take it away, then she's definitely not gonna find them. Look. She's in a, a rescue and breeding facility. 
yes, she needs rescuing. That's <laughs> her her dating life is very serious right now. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's uh yeah. Yeah. Scientists. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Let's move on to the last two papers that we have. Yes. Yes, so the the paper that I'm going to talk about next, or the article, I guess, is investigating the role of dopamine circuits in habit formation. Okay. Yes. Uh, so it was published in Neuroscience News, and the original article itself was published in Cell Reports. So before I get into all of that, just a quick reminder, I am not a neuroscientist whatsoever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, yeah, just keep that in mind as I recite all these very brain-specific regions and okay. complex names. But effectively, when it comes to habit formation, you have a particular region of the brain called the dorsolateral striatum. That's important for that. And it has apparently what is called a closed loop in that region that is important for not only habit formation, but also goal-directed behaviors. So habit is something you'll repeat more often. Goal-directed behavior is something one-off, right? Mm-hmm. And this this is sort of thought to be sort of just a closed loop. But for the longest time, there was also another proposed mechanism, a sort of open ascending spiral loop um. that sort of al- that was proposed to allow goal directed behaviors to eventually become habits. Okay. Um, yeah, um, that's a lot. But the sort of the limiting factor in terms of actually researching this and pr- uh, showing if this was the case or not, it, it was just difficult. Uh, so it's been known, it's been proposed for the last 20 years, but up until now, it, only up until now, it's been uh, actually researched. And how the ascending, open ascending spiral loop would work is that it basically connects the dorsal, actually the dorsal medial striatum to the another brain uh, area called the substantia nigra, which is, which contains sort of the, the brain sort of dopamine neurons, which produce dopamine. And then this would signal, send dopamine to the dorsal lateral striatum, which would be necessary in order to reward and stimulate habit formation. Okay, that's a lot. Yes. I, I needed to reread it a few times to try and get that. So, so yeah. the end result is that dopamine is really important to form the circuits in habit formation, as no, the title no. says. Yes, but the end result is that, and I'll uh, I'll put it the way that the this article itself put it: the ascending spiral loop does exist, but it doesn't work the way we thought it did. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, so I'm getting to that. <laughs> so <laughs> I love the way that this person described the method that was used because they described it as new synaptic and intersectional genetic tools were developed to actually show this ascending spiral spiral loop in fu- in action. Uh, so it does exist, but was what was more interesting that came out of the study was that there's apparently also evidence for a descending spiral, uh, um. yeah, which uh, potentially communicates habits back towards goal-directed sort of subregions of the striatum. Yeah, great. I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it sounds really interesting. Yes. I am not enough of an expert or knowledgeable about this field to be able to, like, understand all of it. But it was like, what? Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree fully. Yeah, but it's interesting. Yeah. I'm also just fascinated by the idea of, like, proposing something for the last 20 years and just not being able to show it. It's like, okay, but we'll keep this around and then we'll come back to it (laughs) when the technology is there. True. Yeah. It'll be like, you know, yes, DNA, but we'll come back to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. 
Okay, and then our very last um, science news article. Recently discovered molecule kills hard to treat cancers, which yep. of course sounds great. It does. It's uh, uh, on SciTech Daily, and the original article was published in Nature. Ooh. Nature Cancer, actually. Sorry. Nature Cancer. Um, and what they were trying to do was they had this new molecule called ERX41 um, that they made, and it they were trying to treat breast cancer. Now, you have different types of breast cancer. You have breast cancer that are sensitive to hormones, female hormones, and you have breast cancers that are not. And the breast cancer that are sensitive to, to hormones, uh, you can treat quite well these days mm-hmm. with anti-hormone treatments, which makes you go into um, menopause, but then you have less hormones, so these cells can grow less well, mm. which is good. But then you also have this class of non-hormone driven driven breast cancers and they are just harder to treat usually so outcomes are also less good so they wanted to make something that would target both or actually the way i read it they sort of found accidentally that it targets (laughs) both because they made this molecule it worked really well in killing cancer cells and leaving normal cells alone but they didn't know how it worked (laughs) so they spent quite a long time trying to figure that out this sounds exactly like metformin. It's like, <laughs> yes, it works, but... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. This was pu- puzzling to us at the time. We knew it must be targeting something other than estrogen receptors, but we didn't know what it was. Okay, so they finally <laughs> figured out what it was, and it actually targets LIPA. Okay. And LIPA is a cell structure, uh, is found in, a, in the endoplasmic reticul- reticulum, and it's actually really upregulated in a lot of types of cancers because it helps the endoplasmic reticulum make a lot of proteins. And cancer cells are, of course, super fast growers and they are really high producers. So they make usually quite a lot of LIPA um, to make that happen. And this protein targets LIPA. And since that's so high in cancer cells, it sort of blocks LIPA, binding it. Uh, and that jams the protein processing in the endoplasmic reticulum, uh, which makes it bloated, leading to cell death. And on healthy cells, that's just way less of a problem because they are not protein factories, basically. Mm. And they also tested it in mice. They had no real big adverse effects, so that's really hopeful. And they also gave the mice some human cancer cells, and that really helps very well. They also tested it against other types of cancers than breast cancers in petri dishes, I assume. And that also worked quite well, especially against heart-to-treat pancreatic and ovarian cancers and glioblastoma, Mm. um, which are really, really difficult to treat type of cancers. So honestly, this this would be great if it works. Yeah. I I was honestly surprised when you listed out different types of cancers that maybe I misheard you, but there was no prostate cancer, right? I don't think they tested it yet. Okay. Yeah, because I, when I think of cancers that are often also hormonal, like breast cancer, obviously with estrogen, but you also have prostate cancer with androgen. So I was like, well, maybe. Yeah, but this specifically targets also non-hormonal. No, no, exactly. But yeah. like, that's why, like, you know, sort of like the the male equivalent of breast yeah. cancer would be, yeah. But I don't know if they actually treat yeah, no. uh, prostate cancer also with anti-hormonal treatments. Yeah, no, fair. I'm also thinking that blocking testosterone might have some more negative effects. Yeah, that's not completely true because 
blocking female hormones also has quite yeah. some negative effects that we sort of take. No, it was just an interesting thing, uh, sort of not include uh, omission from that list of cancers that I was like. Yeah, oh, no. but I mean, blocking protein making mm-hmm. sounds like most types of cancer, at least fast growing cancers, mm-hmm. have to sort of have that. They might not all, all do it via upregulation of LIPA, so that might be mm-hmm. a bit more difficult. But honestly, this sounds this sounds great. No, for sure. Um, I, I'm just wondering, right? Like also with like, for example, chemotherapy, like it targets um, fast growing mm-hmm. cells, right? So I wonder like how well they look at other like a f- side effects on fast growing cells. Yeah, no, they just gave it so far. They they mm-hmm. found in petri dishes now finally what it did. Yeah, yeah. And then they gave it to mice. So no real big side effects. Mm-hmm. And mice are, have, yeah. I guess the same type of cells usually that we do in terms of fast I mean, growing. I mean, I also think, no, indeed, I mean, like the hair, right? Like if they start going bald, that's definitely uh, Yeah, a it sign. doesn't say that in this research no, exactly. article, but yeah. I haven't read the uh, complete original paper, of course. Mm-hmm. But no, they don't, sure. they don't, men- men- they say that there's no, mm-hmm. um, super, w- with no adverse effects either on normal mammarial epithelial cells mm-hmm. or in mice. Okay. So, no, it sounds promising. I mean, obviously, more research has to be done, mm-hmm. but this sounds really promising. I mean, anything that doesn't lead to, like, you know, hair falling out, death of other fast-growing cells, I mean, weight loss, all that sounds like an improvement already. Yeah, and, and chemo also doesn't always work. No, so, exactly. Especially if you could combine treatments mm-hmm. some way to help more, it would be great. No, for sure. I, I assume that you would have some side effects from something that blocks ER... A little bit, mm-hmm. even in healthy cells, right? Because yeah. even healthy cells have LIPA. Mm-hmm. It's just less of a problem for, for them because they're not so dependent on that yeah. really quick protein processing and yeah. making and everything. No, so for sure. I would assume some side effects, but I guess really good, good progress. No, sounds yeah, sounds great. Uh, just need to uh, get it to clinical trials. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess also more mouse studies to to adverse effect need to be done first. That's usually what has to happen before it can go to human trials. I want an in between step of on a pig or something. But uh, in the in the article, they also interviewed the 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 original um, researcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's called An, and he says that he's um, as a chemist, I am somewhat isolated from patients. <laughs> so this success is an opportunity for me to feel. Like what I do can be useful to society, which I guess is also something that so many scientists feel, right? Mm-hmm. That their research might not ever be actually translatable. So I think it's really cool to just see that in this case, that actually might it, be happening. Yeah. No, indeed. Although I have to say, he's not the first author. He's the second to last author. So <laughs> <laughs> he, he is already a, a, a associate professor yeah. PI of at least. chemistry and biochemistry. So yeah. he, it could be us. Um. <laughs> <laughs> we are biochemistry, you know. <laughs> we could do no, this. No, but really cool research. No, for sure. So yeah, that's the one we're gonna close on, I guess. Yes. If you have any questions, suggestions, uh, comments, papers we really need to read, or did you also get nightmares about spider robots? Please let us know. Uh, you can reach us um, via our website, thestrugglingscientist.com, or via our email address, thestrugglingscientist.hotmail.com, or via our social medias. Jerons, which are those again? Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, a little bit on Pinterest. 
and it's zombie spider robots. <laughs> <laughs> true, very true. <laughs> Necrobots, don't forget. Yes. Okay. Well, you can also uh, find our merch on our amazing website and sign up for our newsletter if you also want to be told about really interesting scientific papers monthly. Um, you can sign up to that. So, we hope to see you all next time. Bye. Bye.